and welcome to Super Excited with Stefan Roost. I'm Mike, the facilitator of this podcast. In this episode, Stefan talks to Tom Trowbridge. Tom Trowbridge is a co-founder of Fluence Labs and Hedera Hashgraph, a board member of Stronghold Digital Mining, and is an active investor in the distributed ledger sector. Fluence Labs has developed and launched a peer-to-peer compute protocol that allows the creation of applications free of proprietary cloud providers or centralized APIs. In this episode, Stefan and Tom discuss finding a way into crypto through a more traditional background, how to attract good developers, and how Web3 decentralized adoption breaks cartelization. Enjoy this episode. Hey, everybody. Super excited to be back again. So, um, you know, the show's called Super Excited because this is the best time to be alive. It's so and it's such an exciting time with all the innovation taking place. And today I'm here with Tom. Uh, Tom is the founder of Fluence. He's got a lot of background in blockchain, hard ass, real deep infrastructure stuff. Um, as well as understanding what the needs are to acquire new end users. And so that sort of combination is unique and so super happy to have you here and super excited for you to be here, Tom. Thanks for joining. Awesome. Listen, I'm thrilled to be here and I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah. Maybe a bit of background on yourself, you know, sort of, um, oh, actually, before I go into it, I'm going to ask a question that I always ask at the tail end, but I'm going to try and move it up to the front end now, which is a bit different. But it's like, what is a book that you've read that really stood out for you in the last sort of, you know, maybe six months, 12 months, if you've read a book or listened to an audio book or a podcast or a, a, a movie that you've seen that really sort of stood out and, and, and you felt, wow, that impacted me or I really think that's that's something really cool. So there's a book I'm reading now called Disunited Nations mm. by a guy named Peter Zeehan. And Zeehan, he goes yeah. into the, all the different countries. And this is an old yep. book from old from 2020 and yep. looks at countries from a demographic access to natural resources, protective borders and um, uh, kind of economic kind of innate economic activity. And I yep. find it to be fascinating. Um, given where the world is and he thinks we're a pivotal point from a demographic perspective which is going to alter the the makeup of the countries that we consider the world powers currently um and so i find that to be very interesting it goes into germany into china into france us obviously argentina brazil so i think that is 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 certainly a, a must read for anyone who cares about geopolitics I read that book too, and I must say, I was really fascinated, right? And just how, I mean, I won't, you know, how he breaks down each of the countries, their history, the economic, their positioning, the flow of water, the natural resources, and the military. Um, yeah, it's 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 actually fascinating. And, and in some of the cases, you know, how lots of nations without governments could actually be really prosper, you know, prosperous, right? And so, um, yeah, it's it's. I love that book. I well, gotta say, if you if you know that one, I gotta have a gimme and give you one you may not know, which is called the Unincorporated Man. Have you heard of that? Nope, nope, nope. So that nope. was written, I think, in two thousand six, pre Bitcoin, about a world, a novel. I don't read many novels. The world, kind of, couple, you know, a thousand years from now, where and this pre this basically foreshadows tokenization. And when you wake up, when you're born. 20% of your coins go, you're, you're tokenized and your earnings are tokenized. And some goes to the government, some goes to your parents, some goes to you, and you sell pieces of yourself to fund education, <laughs> everything else. And a guy's frozen and is found and wakes up in this world and he's unincorporated. He owns, he's self sovereign. He owns all of his wealth himself, all of his, his complete autonomy and what that is like and how a threat to the system that is to actually not have anyone control you or have partake in your economics. And so it's a whole kind of global discussion. And there's only one world, there's one world government, there's only one holiday left is a combination between Thanksgiving and Halloween. And it's just all this crazy things, but it, it foreshadows a lot of stuff that's interesting in the crypto world. And it's written pre Bitcoin, which I think is pretty, pretty cool. I'm going to read that. I just put that up and I'm going to, I'm going to go, oh, that sounds amazing. And that's what got you into crypto, is it? <laughs> it would be easy. That would be great if that were the transition. But no, I read that, read that after being in it, actually. Yeah, yeah. 
No, but uh, maybe some background on yourself, right? And, and you've, you've got a, an amazing um, a past. You, you, you got very heavily involved in Hedera. I think you were one of the sort of founders or, or sort of really early members of Hedera. Yep. Um, and then we met uh, at a conference and we've always been in touch and we were introduced. And anyway, so it's like, yeah, I was always fascinated by your background and your focus on developer tools and infrastructure, right? And, and I'm really like what you're doing at Fluence um, and, and really building the tooling for it with this Web5 that we now talk about. Maybe just share a bit sort of your background, how you got into crypto and a bit about Tom, right? And sort of, yeah, your, your, how, how did you get into crypto and, and what was the trigger to get Hedera off the ground and then yeah. get into Fluence? Sure. So listen, I come from a little bit more traditional background, but have been involved in technology since graduating college. I wasn't a developer, not... Um, uh, but I but I started off doing technology on the banking side and then moved yeah. into technology investing in private equity and then moved from there to a variety of other more finance roles. But after that, after those two kind of technology oriented ones, I did I kept doing seed investing on my own in technology companies. And so I was at Goldman for a bunch of years and a couple other asset managers and I kept doing seed investments and I came across a friend actually sort of a friend of a friend introduced me to Hedera and I, that was in 2016 and I had been yeah. looking at Bitcoin and Ethereum and everything back then. And I found it to be fascinating and I knew that there was a lot I didn't know and I didn't know what I didn't know, but it still was seemed like a very compelling concept. And so I invested in the seed round of Swirls, which is the parent company of Hedera, got to know Mance and Lehman, and they asked me to, to, to basically join and found and helped launch the public network, which be, which we ultimately called Hedera. We didn't even have the name at the time. Yeah. And there was just yeah. a white paper. Um, and the reason I did it was I felt the whole space was going to be huge. And I felt Hedera, the, the technology had reached a stage where, you know, Lehman had been developing this since like 2012 or 13. So it had been years of development. And so I got to basically jump into it when the tech had been somewhat developed but just hadn't had an expression in a public forum at all. And so it was kind of a great time. And, and the other kind of thing that was interesting was Hedera was and is an institutional oriented yeah. layer one where we want trust in the whole concept of, of proof of, of stake where you who does, runs the stake and you have the, the concept of Hedera was you have big blue chip institutions with more to lose than money, the reputation to lose. And so to do that, I felt my background with more kind of, you know, um, traditional enterprise was very valuable to that group to help bring them in. So it was a good mix um, and was, you know, um, happy and thrilled to do that. Um, you know, Hedera since has launched, we raised, we raised 125 million or so in a big raise and it launched. It's performed from a tech perspective as well or better than expected, um, continues to do well. The market kind of doesn't exactly know what to think of it because it's institutional in a world that loves pure, um, uh, I guess, decentralization in a way, although Hedera, you argue, is decentralized as well in a different way. But there's a bit of a mix with the community it was patented first. It's not now. So there was a couple of kind of differences with the traditional um, layer ones that spread some objections to it, but it's doing great. But I left in 19 and when I left in 19, um, one of the Hedera, um, one of the investors I had met through Hedera, but who wasn't an investor in Hedera, um, Lasse Clausen from 1KX, who's a well-known investor in the space, said, yeah. Tom, you've got to um, meet the Fluence guys because they're the smartest technical team I know, and you guys would be a great combination. And so I met Evgeny and Dimitri um, in, in Berlin in 19, and as soon as my non-compete was up, I joined them. They're not, they don't compete with Adair at all, but yep. I joined them in 19 and have been um, basically helping kind of build uh, and grow Fluence from, from then. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, sort of, you know, yeah, we met when you were at Fluence and Fluence was really early stage. I think you just, it was, you had just joined uh, or just sort of were contemplating joining and, and it was all just pre-COVID, this COVID mayhem. Um, yeah, so congrats in terms of how you've shaped it. But maybe share a bit about Confluence itself and why yeah. you feel, I mean, it's, yeah, why you feel that at 2019, why did you feel the timing was right, number one, 
And then number two is what got you, yeah, I mean, sort of why, why, why did you feel you could help shape this in, the, in that direction, given that you had those well, me, great engineers? Well, let me first explain what Fluence is, because that, I think you, you already know it better than most. And Fluence is a peer-to-peer -peer computing platform and, or compute platform. And that right away requires some explanation. And, you know, I ask get also the time, what's compute? And I'm actually trying to figure out easy ways to describe it because it's so ubiquitous, we forget to even describe it. But compute is every time you type something in, into your phone or your computer, it gets digitized into ones and zeros. Once that leaves your computer or your phone, as if, assuming that's just not static and stored somewhere, anything else that happens to it is compute, is processing. Yeah. Whether that's a search for something on Amazon, a search for a currency, but anything requires processing power. And that processing power, most of it takes place in the cloud, in Amazon, AWS, or Azure. And so that is compute, and that is basically what runs and makes this whole web world that we live in operate, is this processing power that's basically taking those bits and figuring out what to do with them to get you what you, the consumer or business or you know algorithm, what it wants back. And that yeah. can be incredibly simple, a counter on a website, it can be incredibly complex from, you know, some, you know, decoding, you know, some genome, right? All kinds of stuff. And so what we're doing at Fluence is do, providing it in a decentralized way. So peer to peer. And that means that instead of relying on a host, like, an, like a single host that's centralized, like an Amazon or Google, this, our um, protocol allows that to happen in any of a number of hosts who ever has the capability of providing that compute, you can perform it. And that has a whole bunch of benefits from censorship resistance to fault tolerance to a number of elements. And so we feel the future of this is peer-to-peer -peer, and the future is peer-to-peer. -peer. And so I got sold on um, blockchain as decentralized, um, uh, not only just stores of value, but also of commerce. But yeah. then I realized you actually have to take it further because while you can, it's great to have decentralized, you know, um, censorship resistant finance and money, which is what a lot of early use cases of blockchain is in terms of DeFi and everything else to actually end up in a world to, if we want a world where you are not subject to state oversight and state control effectively has to be peer to peer. There's no other way because inevitably the larger the comp the web favors scale and the more scale you get the more easy point of control that is for governments and they just do it's just what they do right it's not their fault they just want to do that and so deplatforming is a thing big get bigger is a thing and so peer-to-peer -peer is basically the only way for us to retain us individuals to retain some level of control and sovereignty over any decisions or anything we want. And that's what attracts me to it. Yeah, and I think that's brilliant, right? I mean, you, this whole deplatforming issue, right? It was the community helps grow and establish a platform. And then the platforms really take, I don't necessarily think they listen to the community anymore. They lose touch with the community and try to steer the community in a preferred direction that the leadership running that centralized platform really drives and us in essence what decentralization or deplatforming has allowed is that we as community members actually have a share or a voice in the direction of a specific project because we have skin in the game um and, and, and i think we in in web3 or in crypto land we haven't yet built a platform that is of that magnitude and has that meant that brought an audience yet, which I think has been the struggle. And I think the tooling you're providing is, is going to enable creative developers to build an interface on that. But one thing is, are you building a blockchain as well? Do you have node operators that maintain the compute or do you work with other blockchain providers to enable that compute uh, uh, resourcing? Well, so that, and, and you just hit on the key piece of this which is yep. we are not a layer one, this is off chain. And yep. so I kind of glossed over that. But our view is that you can do peer-to-peer -peer is two, blockchain, peer-to-peer -peer started more or less with Napster. 
that was yeah. like a decade before Bitcoin, right? And so we think of blockchain as a subset of peer-to-peer. -peer. And so ours is non-deterministic, off-chain compute, but is peer-to-peer. -peer. So you can plug it in to a blockchain if you want, but it's not yeah. smart contract based. You can do peer-to-peer -peer compute now via Ethereum. No problem, works fine. But what can you do on a smart contract is like this much versus what you need to do to actually run applications is is a thousand times more so we do and and there's certain people who are trying to do this on chain that requires massive throughput and scale and computation very hard so we instead have built peer-to-peer -peer, but not blockchain compute and that's that's a critical critical difference and that's the leap that a lot of people in the blockchain space are accustomed to saying blockchain first then figure out what the problem is later we started with we want the most flexible, useful compute possible. And we actually use blockchain in a different form, which is to track usage and reward usage and for authenticity as well. And so we use blockchain blockchain for other elements of it, yeah. but we do not. But the compute itself is not on chain. So the compute will be my device or it's a grid network of multiple different devices on a peer-to-peer -peer basis, e.g. I mean, similar to what BitTorrent was providing for video content, you're providing that for compute content. Is that... 100% uh, uh... right, but I'd phrase it slightly differently. The most yeah. real world analogy right now would be like an IPFS or a Filecoin, right? Yeah. IPFS has tons, you know, thousands of nodes out there providing storage. We yep. will have thousands of nodes out there just providing compute. That's yep. the concept. Yeah. And though that, and that's people, sitting here on my computer, on your computer, this other computer that's sitting here, and, and then maybe even on the mobile phone. Also, yes, but also at data centers. And yep. so you can do this at AWS. It just then runs, you're running, you know, an instance at AWS, you're running a Fluence protocol at AWS. So you can have all the resilience of Amazon if you want it. Um, and someone will do that, but it happens to be running in an open source, open stack where you can leave that host if you want and go to Google the next day or go to, you know, Stefan's phone or whoever. And so yeah. that is the concept is there will be tier one data centers on it. There'll be individuals on it and, the, and reliability and trust is a key piece of this and people will pay different amounts for different things. Interesting. And, and it's, it's very much a, a developer focused product, right? I mean, for you getting out to developers, what has been a challenge on that journey, right? Finding developers. I mean, developers today, they go to Amazon Web Services and there's a whole slew of compute resources, right? How do you find and, and provide an alternative to those developers, both institutional and independent developers? So that is hard. Um, yep. Yeah. We have a, there's, there's a couple things we need to do and we are in the process of doing. So first is our tooling has to be um, better than it is. And so we have to yeah. make it easier to use. And we've discovered that via hackathons, you can get so close to a project, you forget, you know, X, Y, Z is an obvious. So, <laughs> right. So that's yeah. stuff that we're continuing to work on. Second, first target are Web3 native applications for whom yep. decentralization is a core tenant. You know, people forget that a whole bunch of Web3 applications run on centralized backends. Infura is hosted at Amazon. Doesn't Amazon. make any sense, yeah. right? So, you know, and again, it's not their fault. It's just there is, this is a very difficult problem to solve. And peer-to-peer -peer compute is hard. And so there haven't been solutions for it, which is why it happens. So the other point is the Web3 guys are the first bit. And if they haven't built their own solution yet, then we're, we're there. And then we're also very close to picking a vertical, which we are going to advance very deeply in terms of our developer tools. So it's super easy for people to spin up. And we're a couple of conversations on that right now. So I don't want to say exactly what it is, okay. um, but that will be kind of our first is basically picking a vertical that we think is a high value use that we Segment. can accelerate yep. and that will help make it easier for developers to use. So pre-Bitcoin and what got me into Bitcoin was I was very 
into developers. And I did a lot of developer acquisition at Sun Microsystems, um, getting mobile developers to write to Java and JVMs, particularly on the mobile devices. And after having left that, I launched an agency to help all the big tech companies do developer acquisition. And one of the things, you know, that I found really interesting was summarizing it into a simple level, four different elements that you needed to do to appeal to developers. You could either pay them, so money. You could either give them distribution, so you have a large audience base and that you provide an open API, they will then get access to your customer base. So distribution. And then the other one was visibility and marketing. So I can then promote you. If you work with me into a partnership, I can promote you and I can give you access to, you know, a whole bunch of VCs and a whole bunch of media that allows you to get your presence out there. And then the last element was documentation and tooling. How quick and how difficult is it for me to learn this new tool set or these new set of products? Um, how well is it to document? How streamlined is it? Etc. And so I found that was something and and in all of the roads, those and it varied then by geography. Europe was more tooling focused, Asia I'd say was a bit more money focused, and then the US developers were more um, skewed towards marketing and distribution and visibility, right? Um, so it was just interesting to see that journey. And so intrigued to well, see how you did that. <clears throat> Well, I mean, I think that the other element, which you haven't talked about too much about Fluence, but the economic model for people to put, you mentioned all the tools and services AWS has, right? Yeah. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of open source, which they then monetize themselves. Yeah. But on Fluence, and this takes a minute to describe, but if I write some open source code and I upload yeah. to Fluence, yeah. you as a host, you, if you and I, you agree to host it, you agree to give me some amount, 5%, 2%, some small amount of the hosting revenue that you charge. So when developer three developer comes along and it's like, I want that database that Tom wrote and, oh, look, Stefan hosted, I trust his hosting. I'm going to compose it along with these 10 other applications. I'm paying Stefan a hosting fee because he's got all those different things. Some of, and this all happens via smart contract. Some of that hosting fee then flows to me, the open source developer. And so what we think that does is will ultimately drive a far richer and yeah. faster evolving suite of tools that are for people to use. And so that is how we think the only way you could possibly compete with the global hosting providers is if you have the whole developer community of the world yeah. aligned and incented to, to, to help. And that's the only shot. And so that is how we've tried to set up this economic model. We haven't, that's the main thing missing. If you think about my early analogy, it's the file coin on top of IPFS, right? And so we're, we're in the process of building that economic incentive, which is frankly the easier part versus the other things that we built. But that's probably a next year phenomenon because we want to get our tooling and other stuff done here better first. So we're ready for the yep. economic incentive bit. But we think that is the, that gets also to your point about how did, why will developers use it if it's faster and easier as well because you have a good suite of products. And then that, you, it takes some effort, right? But that kicks in a flywheel at some point. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, and, it, and it's engineering wise, I can see the challenges are far greater than modeling out a business uh, commercial sort of opportunity associated with that. It does, you know, sort of especially given that some of the products out there have multiple open source components inside that one final end product, right? Um, and then sharing the royalty and being able to manage the utilization of that and then the distribution of that across the contributors to that final product. Yeah, and well, and, and frankly, it gets slightly more complicated. I'll explain in a second. So imagine, you know, Bill composes yep. six different tools that you host. Yep. All yep. right. You have a fee you you're charging for that. And you yep. just agreed that for mine, it's, and you know, the processing power mine takes you know, the processing power, everything takes so relatively automated. That's that can be tracked. That's not that hard. That's somewhat complex, but it's just math more or less. But the interesting thing is that then this application Bill wrote, because this is all open and all open APIs, then someone else can come and look at Bill's application and add something on top of Bill's application 
And now he's got a new one. And so what we're thinking about is this model we've seen of just Twitter by itself, Facebook by itself. If have, those are now in this world, they're all open APIs. Everything is composable, right? So Bill just built this application and someone's like, you know what? That's a chat app. That's great. I want to do that. I'm going to add photos to it and I want to have it in Portuguese. So they add a new UI to that and they're using the same thing. They just built a new front end and now you're still hosting it and it's going all the way through. And so users are, anyway, the point is you can, the idea is to keep building on top. And we think that leads to a terrific amount of creativity. Yeah, no. And I think, you know, one thing that has always been underappreciated is, is certain, you know, developers do have a level of creativity that I think has always been underappreciated. It's a very different manifestation of creativity. It's not a nice painting on a wall or, uh, you know, a, a, a sculpture that has been sculpted. It is or a song that's been written. It's, it's a piece of code that's been created that then ultimately um that mindset is a very different mindset to thinking in a digital realm and, and how that works. Correct. Think- and, and it's about what different people find useful. And when you make that, that creativity cheap yeah. 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 and it's simple to do, then yeah. people can experiment and throw shit at a wall without having to build the back end again and again and again and again. And then you, then if one of a thousand works, but there's 10,000, 10 times more people trying, you end up with something interesting. Yeah, and that's the beautiful bit, right? I mean, and, and with open source software as well, right? And the developers and reducing all the barriers of the ability to participate and, and drive inclusion allows, with open source, allows people to experiment on all different fronts, provide that experimentation in an open source available to anybody else that wants to either build it and fork it and do it on their own or build on it and enhance it and augment it based on the learnings that I had from my experiment, right? Um, and, and that allows for such rapid innovation at a really fast pace, a lot of experimentation. So it's still early days, but it, it's, it's, that's what I think is why this is such an exciting time to be alive. <laughs> Um, <laughs> one, one, one of several, but yes. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's like, uh, but, but, but I think one thing that is interesting, you know, your background with, you started off at, at, at Hedera, which was very much institutional focused, right? And I, you know, I, I did a lot of work with institutions. Um, and I looked at the time when Hedera, what was you, you got involved in 2016, right? So really early on. Um, and, at the time, and even even if you go back to 2020, right, the institutions were looking at blockchain as oh, it's still. So, I mean, 2016 must have been like, oh my god, what the what the hell's what the what's blockchain? And then in that those days, we didn't even call it blockchain; we called it crypto, right? It was like really now we have this fancy word called Web three. It's like ooh ooh ooh, that's okay. We can go into Web three, but the how the institutional development, the institutional adoption hasn't happened yet or it's it's slowly beginning to happen how do you find the developers in that space and that realm given your background with hedera and now with fluence where you're going after maybe more independent developers or maybe institutional developers as well well i got a couple things so first on the hedera side i mean one of the things i had to do was build the governing council of fortune 500 blue chip companies so we had to go to them like guess what We've got this blockchain we want you to be publicly associated with that hasn't launched, that's going to have a token that um, you've never heard of and no one is using, you know, ready to sign up. Right. That was a challenge. Um, but 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 we managed but, but we and, and but we managed to do it. It was it was a hard. Obviously, it took a little longer than we thought, but it was a challenge. I guess the, the, the thing I'd say is that. Um, one of the one of the, the the learnings at Hedera was the importance of community, and so the Fluence team. When I joined, I wanted to make sure that they were really tight with the developer and Web three community, and so they are developers first, and yep. they are very close with the community, and they've done multiple um, kind of uh, 
Web3 developer surveys to understand, not just to build relationships with thousands of developers and to understand what kind of challenges are, hot buttons um, and, and opportunities. And so that kind of credibility with the developer community, I think is a, is a, is a critical piece to launching something, you know, as opposed to coming in from the outside where, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. It's only so much time yeah. you have for someone yeah. that you don't know, haven't heard of project you don't aren't aware of, et cetera. And so that element, I think was a, a key piece of being interested in fluence was that those relationships and duration within the community. And that's been helpful in getting people to pay attention. The other thing is we're lucky is that, um, you know, we have some great investors and they know lots of projects. They yeah. provide introductions <clears throat> to lots of projects. That's also a very helpful avenue for us in terms of adoption. We're talking, I don't know, half a dozen projects right now, or maybe more, some of which wow. came, oh, that, sorry, that came directly from our investors, you know, which is, which is also very helpful. Interesting. Yeah. Because one, one, in, I think it was about 2020, I was working with a, with Suku. Suku was doing supply chain at the time and they were trying to do, um, monitor the insights of a supply chain, right? How can you authenticate, um, origin of meat, of cotton, um, around the world, particularly if it was being consumed somewhere else in the world, right? And it was, I mean, they were actually working with Hedera as well. And they had built solutions, particularly in emerging markets where it worked, and they were rewarding the data contributors at the end. So farmers um, who were providing authentication and data inputs, and then it was going um, across the whole supply chain and tracking the shipment delivery all the way to the storefront. But one of the things that then the garment industry was under a lot of pressure for you know, making sure that they hit quotas associated with importing of products, the origin, you know, the market, the consumer market was very conscious of where is this cotton coming from? Is it not come, you know, is it is it clean? Is it organic? Is it uh, healthy? Is it not with child labor, etc.? And so that whole supply chain needed to be tracked. But to get a decision out of all of these institutes was just. You know, it, it took more than 12 months to get a decision. And then nobody wanted to pull the decision. So the committee needed to set, set up a committee to have a committee to do the committee decision to decide when to come to meet together. And so just I felt that what a waste of time. And so in the end, the company pivoted and got into NFT business and was making a lot more money in the NFT business. And so dropped the whole enterprise institutional approach and went down the NFT marketplace and in, in the essence has done really well with boutique brands, NFTifying the supply chain and the authenticity of products. That, that's terrific. And I, I am not surprised in the slightest. I think that, you know, that's why consortiums don't yep. work and people yeah. keep asking about consortiums. And well. the difference <laughs> with Hedera a little bit is that Hedera started off with a couple of guys. And yeah. we've got institutions in to provide oversight and governance. And that's yeah. a key difference. Like there already was a roadmap. There already was development. Like this is happening. And yeah. you guys are joining to help use cases, help oversee, help set a budget. You're there as a board, not as like, at least initially, and that may evolve over time, but they didn't get together and be like, guess what? We're going to build a blockchain. Okay. How do we do that? Like we, we would still be in the planning stages if that was the case. And so coming at it with a fully baked plan and saying, guess what? The last piece just needs you, which means you just have to be honest and you have to oversee. And oh, by the way, as a check, you can fire management, um, which yeah. is very important. So that's great. But it wasn't they weren't involved in actually pushing it forward and launching it. And that I think is that that distinction makes all the difference in kind of enterprise um, involvement. But to your point, getting these things to sign up, like getting IBM to sign up, it's one committee, then there's another person, there's another yeah, person exactly. there, and then this right. person wants to get involved. And then that guy has, an, it's like, oh my God. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that, that, that was sort of my experience, has been my experience. And, and that's why sort of partially I loved 
Bitcoin and crypto, the peer-to-peer -peer capability, right? The ability to find anywhere in any point at any on any node uh, a like-minded individual that will collaborate, will you know, cooperate, will um, yeah, will will drive the same, will share the same vision um, to be able to then drive that innovation. And I think the more we can make tools available for this peer-to-peer -peer interaction, the more we can then build micro communities that then aggregate in some up into bigger communities that share like-minded interests. Um, and that's why tools in the peer-to-peer -peer space or on the blockchain um, are really helpful. Yeah, listen, I, I, I would agree, except I'll take it a little bit further, which is that, and I sort of opened this a little bit, is that you're talking about communities and adoption and that's the yes. right i agree with that path for sure and but flip it the other way which is if we don't do that then the world consists of amazon twitter google yes. and like facebook and a couple of others and they dominate our news they dominate what applications can exist they dominate what we see they cut off <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and so that that deplatforming right and so if the if we don't give the tools for people to build you know without those levers of control then you end up in a world that's controlled effectively by a couple of companies which effectively is controlled more or less by governments because they ultimately have the guns yeah, and yeah, so that right so that's where that is the world that is, is, is we're sort of heading towards unless and, and our only shot is this peer to peer world to to provide an alternative to that. So we, you know, just on that note, right, one of the ways that governments have had influence uh, over a lot of these centralized tech companies has been largely the physical presence, the need to set up a physical office, a location, have uh, you know people come to those offices etc. Now, ultimately, they've set up all different tax havens and, and in corporate structures that the lawyers have taken over to manage. But in essence, where and, and then ultimately, you need to list on an exchange somewhere. But there's been an evolution in, in Web3. And, and I mean, it's not really an evolution. It's, it's the DAO model, right? So um, decentralized autonomous organizations that are now shifting away from having any physical location or any sort of physical legal entity, it's just managed by holders of tokens, right? So they actually have governance tokens and participate and engage in divvying up some of the workload, divvying up some of the, 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 the treasury funds towards furthering that project. How do you feel about that and, and, and where do you see that going, right? I mean, it's still got some early learnings. I don't think it's, it's very matured yet, but it's less than maybe 10 years old, you know, this DAO model. Um, what, what's your thoughts on that? Um, well, Fluence is going to be governed by a DAO. Okay, and there so you go. we're in the final stages of setting up a Swiss association yeah. to basically be legal wrapper on a DAO. And we're going to, um, it's actually kind of funny, is that I've had some great conversations with people in the space on it. But I haven't seen any real primers on it. So I'm actually writing a piece to publish about why we chose the association, what the point of it is, and what was our thought process and all the terms that we chose. And so to give the quick cliff notes on it, you can set up a DAO today on chain. The problem is in the US, it's a, it is classified as an unregistered general partnership where anybody who's a part of it is liable for all of the liabilities of that DAO. And so that is a very dangerous position to be in unless you are sure that everybody who's a member of that DAO is fully anonymous and always will be. And that is a challenge, especially with a project that has management that people know or founders that people yeah, know yeah, or yeah. users that people know. So a legal wrapper, I think, is important. And then the and legal wrapper directs, you know, basically insulates anyone from liability. Challenge with the legal wrapper is making it such that the DAO on-chain voting still controls everything. And yep. so then this leads to a whole bunch of things and you don't want to end up in a Tezos situation where all of a sudden, right, the, for those who don't remember it, the board has basically taken it over and does an entirely different strategy than, and, and took it over versus what the original intent was to give it to them. That was a Swiss um, foundation, not yeah. an association, very different, different structure. Um, 
And so the challenge has been for us in architecting our legal association in such a way that it's as much possible governed by token holders and yet has a couple checks and balances such that one vote can't, you know, one midnight vote couldn't like dissolve it or take it over or, you know, um, uh, corrupt it. And so that is a, 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 there's a lot of, you know, we also, let me put it differently, we haven't yet seen, you know, billion dollar treasury DAOs, right? Once you think, you always have to think about the attack vectors when there's a billion under management and what, what incentives then are there for people to try to go after it and how can they do that? So you got to plan with those um, kind of orders of magnitude of value because if you're successful, that's where you go. And that is a that leads to you know further things to be to be contemplating on. So happy to talk about that in any depth, but I think DAOs certainly work. Um, and you're and you see this whole mess of not mess this whole spectrum of of, of approaches. But I think you're going to see legal wrappers, and I think that just makes sense. And then how the voting takes place and what happens behind those legal wrappers is a huge range. And one DAO is not the same as the next. As as a friend of mine yeah, once said about exactly. family offices. You met yeah. one family office, you've met one family office. Yeah. <laughs> and they're very different from each other. But I think one of, you know, and, and that's why I think it's still in experimentation phases, right? I mean, I think, you know, um, I, I had a good chat with Eric, you know, over at, at Shapeshift um, in, in, in Palm Beach the other month or something. And he, you know, they shifted from setting up a Swiss foundation to then being incorporated and then going full DAO, right? So they went through the whole journey and they lost a lot of users because ultimately they were being asked to do a lot more KYC on users and, and do the full disclosure and regulate the, their and be under a regulated umbrella, which they felt they had to do based on the pressure that was applied onto them, right? And so ultimately they then decided when the DAO came through, we just go down and we take no custody of this and let's build a legal framework around how we can justify this. And then you have MakerDAO, to your point, a million, I mean, you know, I don't know if they have a billion in treasury, but they do have a market cap in the multi-billions and they are fully autonomous now today, right? I mean, there is no company, they dissolved the company um, and, you know, they have a development arm in, 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 in sort of San Francisco or California somewhere. Um, and, and so it's interesting to see how these different models evolve and, um, yeah. And then how ultimately the token holders can control it in their case, the token holders are becoming the traditional finance industry and representing, you know, sort of their own interests in a, in a, in, in the DAO, which is yeah, interesting. No, it, it, well, exactly right. And is your interest in furthering the protocol and success or in maximizing value of that coin. And those may be yeah. different things depending on yeah. your time horizon. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's, it's again, a time horizon, right? A lot of, a lot of, I think we'll see a lot more maturity around a lot of these DAO products as, and like you are, you're working on a different type of model uh, with a different approach based on the learnings that you've seen from the, uh, what went wrong with Tezos, for example, right? But I think one of the things, you know, sort of your background, right? You've 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 come and you just mentioned really early on that you worked at, at I think Bear Stearns and Goldman Sachs and um, sort of had a lot of experience and came out of I think you were at, at, at sort of really good universities. How do you find the you know sort of one of the questions I was going to ask is it important to go to and do your MBA and go to university, take on a student loan and go through that whole process and then get a high degree at a big company and then work as an entrepreneur or can I just learn it on my own? And and I don't know what the answer is, so I'm intrigued to hear what your thoughts are. You know, I guess I'd say there are certain skills that. I credit going to good schools and helping and that's speaking, yeah. it's writing, it's communicating and it's certain foundational elements of like statistics and math that I think are important. And so the trick is if you don't do that, you just have to have the discipline to go pick up those skills well and find people or ways to learn that well, because those I find lacking in business all the time. There's the ability and I actually you know, one of the things I asked in, in interviewing um, was asking people to write something to, for me. Yeah. 
and like just see kind of what those writings. So just and by the way, just because you go to university doesn't mean you learn that, right? Yeah. So anyway, those are just skills I think are are really important to have. Um, do you need university support? No. If you're lucky enough to go to a good one, that just provides an extra look at your resume when you're going into those early jobs. So I yeah. view those schools as like a as a better it increases your odds of getting an early job and then those things help you down the road. Is it required? No. Does it make like easier? Yes, unquestionably. Is it worth the money and the time? It, it, it's I, I, I don't know. Um, it's yeah. hard. I, if I did it again, I would I was lucky enough to, 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 to go to Yale and I would definitely do it again. Is it a requirement? No way. Um, and I think if you look at successful entrepreneurs, the schools they went to are a huge range and plenty didn't go to schools. But I'm, I guess I'm not of the camp that school is a waste of time because I do think you learn a whole lot from not just classes, but socialization and groups and teams. And, you know, a lot comes with that that I think is, is ultimately useful So in life. So I'm not of a camp that, you know, forget school, it's worthless even if you can pick up the skills on your own. Like, I just, I, I think, I think there's more to it than that. Um, but, uh, but, but it's not, but by no means would that be, is it a requirement? I just think it's, it is useful. Yeah. Yeah. No, my, 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 my time was, I finished, I did my sort of, I don't know, high school, Abitur in uh, Matura in Switzerland. So I did my school, uh, high school, if you will, I could finish that. And I had was fed up with school. I didn't want to go back to school. So I launched a textile advertising business. I, I, I worked at a media company. I did a lot of things. But then I realized sort of one of my mentors said, you got to go to university. You got accepted. And, and I got a letter that said, do you want to go back to university? And then I decided, okay, I'll go back, right? It's like he told me I should go back. He did that education. So I'll go do it. So I went to university and studied. And what I found... I mean, in Europe, it's easier because you don't need to pay a lot of money to do it. It actually, a large portion of the universities paid for by through the social systems that we have there. But it gave me time to think. And I could be really creative with some very like-minded or interesting individuals, which at the time, I mean, I was thinking of GPS. We would think of teleportation. We were working on object-oriented code bases. Um, so we were doing all of these interesting uh, projects, which today, you know, are really live. And I just really enjoyed that time. And, the, and, and at the time, we were thought we were wacky. We were doing websites for flowers deliveries, right? So it was like, I mean, this was really early on. And it was just fascinating that you had that time to tinker and, and, and push your creativity. And I, I found that valuable. Is that worth the fee? I don't know. And like you, I, I don't know if it's worth it. Well, and I guess my the corollary there is I never thought I was just straight, straight to college and contemplate not going. Um, for me, that decision was about business school. And I went to yep. Columbia Business School and yep. I started there in January of 02. And that was for, you know, right after 9-11. And, you know, the, everything went pshunk. And so that I, I was yeah. not excited to go yeah. to business school. I was like really interviewing for other jobs. I was like, I was not, I, and at business school, I would, I would, I sort of, my thing, my comment, how's business school? I'm like, well, it takes a big chunk out of my day. Like I wouldn't want to do other things. And yeah. so I was th that, and yet I learned, I had some great classes. I did learn a couple of great things in classes. And I met um, some terrific friends of mine who are very close. And so that was also all positive. Um, but I think that if nine, you know, that hadn't happened, I may not have gone. Um, and so for me, that was a real, eh, does it make sense? Does it, you know, I was, I wasn't convinced that that was a worthwhile use of time and money to your point. And, you know, maybe, and, and so that, that to me was the harder, way harder call than college. And I, and for what I do now. I don't think that has any bearing on what I do now whatsoever. Um, maybe right afterwards, it helped a little bit, but um, that I feel is you just sort of past the foundational tools at that point. And that's more honing for something specific. And, you know, I think I'd accomplished and learned a lot of that already. So that to me was, 
was probably, you know, I, that I would say is, 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 is not so, not so relevant. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, you know, sort of you're, you know, you, you went to Yale and you went to Columbia. I, and, 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 and at your core, right. I mean, decentralization and peer to peer are, are, are really what, what, what really, you know, that's Tom to me. Right. Sort of, um, and it's funny that, um, it's so establishment. It, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and, and it's true, but from the beginning, like, you know, I it, listen in, in, uh, you know, high school, I was running to like change the dress code. And like, I was, you know, you know, I was always sort of a little, you know, resistant to, you know, authority from, from the beginning. So just, and, 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 you know, those, and especially Yale is very, even more yeah. so now, um, uh, sort of non-authority oriented. Well, depending on how you define authority these days, I suppose it's a whole other conversation, but, um, but, uh, so, that has always been at my core of sort of independent individualism, if you will. Yeah. And yeah. those were places to learn and to develop tools, but not necessarily to be, you know, deployed down a traditional path in perpetuity. Yeah, I think, you know, but it's, it's also funny. I just got um, approached by Yale, you know, sort of they are, they're, they're trying to understand decentralization and Web3. How does that work? How's, how's regulatory framework need to play into that? And Colombia, they have a big crypto club or, or you know, blockchain association inside the Colombia University as well. And they're, they're doing all sorts of little events and stuff like that as well. So it's, um, yeah. It's interesting how then sort of, you know, 10 years ago, it was a joke and it was only done by little kids who were playing games online and, or, or drug smugglers on Silk Road. And now all of a sudden it's in Jerome Powell's, you know, statement, you know, where cryptocurrencies is influencing his policymaking. Right. So it's quite a well, quite a journey. We're, we're at what, day three or five of the new UK PM who's already mentioned you know, yeah. blockchain and, and, and Bitcoin. Yeah. And so, yeah. And I, I think one of the things that I, I, you know, sort of was hoping for much earlier on was this whole sort of jurisdictional hopping, I called it, where you would be able to, and I think Binance did a fantastic job around that, right? They just hopped around the world and set up a legal entity and that would be their headquarters. In the end, to the, such a confusion that nobody knew where their headquarters was in the, in the end, right? They were just everywhere, and but nowhere really, right? And so um, I feel that that is going to become stronger and stronger as we sort of move away from these big monolithic centralized platforms and from a government perspective as well right i mean look i mean you've got smaller nations like holland or switzerland or or norway that are trying to create little bastions the uk spun out of the eu and trying to create a different jurisdictional framework Ireland's prospered, Lisbon's prospered, you know, Malta did prosper until they, I think, were shut down. Um, yeah, you know, sort of Texas, Austin is booming, you know, Miami's booming. So these places that are sort of saying, actually, you know, you do what you want to do. We're going to do what we do. And we're going to provide these huge incentives to really drive and attract entrepreneurs to come here. And, and, and. I feel that that is another form of decentralization. And how do we put governance onto a decentralized framework into the blockchain so that we can govern communities worldwide? And what would that look like? Well, I guess I'll, I'll, let me. That's a let me answer it one one way, and, and maybe you want to ask re-ask the question if I don't hit it. But I guess I would say is that everything you're talking about makes sense and. I, I certainly see it as well. The big stranglehold in everything is is trading and the yep. fiat link to crypto, which is U.S. as the primary capital market in the world, and the SEC is the primary, you know, regulatory body of the primary, you know, capital market in the world overseas. And that is like this 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 gating piece, which is incredibly makes life challenging for everybody. And so yeah. there's a couple of things that can happen is the SEC can either back off, which ain't happening anytime soon with Gensler around. It's headed the other way, unfortunately. The, the other, other way around. Is, 
Right. The other, the other way is for more and more assets to basically persist in crypto without a need for fiat link. And so the more, if you were in a world with pick a number, $20 trillion of yeah. crypto and people were paying for everything in crypto and it was a crypto related ecosystem that was completely self-sufficient, that's a whole different world. And yeah. now the jurisdictions you're talking about can appeal to that, governance can work to that, everything can now operate without that, at least potentially, or more potentially, without this, you know, straw that the, you know, of SEC regulation that this whole world is trying to go through right now. And so I guess to see that world that you want to have happen effectively, we need to have people comfortable enough to have massive amount of the bulk or a large, a good piece of wealth persist in crypto and not move. Yeah. Because it's that fiat link that is that creates all this friction and all this regulatory constraint. And so that is, I guess that's that's a way of of uh, somewhat addressing your point. Um, but 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 I may I may have or may not have. I'm not I'm not sure that that's, that's at least that's at least a way I, I think about the potential future. Yeah, no, and, and I don't see it happening in you know anytime soon either, right? But I do feel that there you know there's so much experience that we have acquired in the fiat world or oh, the traditional tra traditional world right or in the meat world um and how can we take a lot of those learnings and the positive aspects of those learnings that are still relevant and leverage the assets that we have available to us mobile phones electricity computing um and, and, and put smart contracts and, and put the relevant sets of governments, you know, of, of governance onto, you know, sort of and into consensus models um, that work to streamline and, and increase efficiencies um, around the world, right? And, and I don't think we've spent enough time thinking about that, but we also still denominate everything in U.S. dollars, right? TVLs are U.S. dollar denominated, right? It's not in Bitcoin denominated, or we, we still think in real world dollars. Ultimately, we pay rent in dollars. We pay food, the grocery taxes. shop, taxes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Taxes. Um, unless you're in Switzerland, you can actually pay taxes in crypto as well. Um but the Swiss model is actually really unique in the sense that it's very federated. The distribution of decision-making is very local. Um, it, it, it sort of aggregates up into a central organization that is no central organization. It's run by uh, like a foundation in a way. The country's like run by six different presidents, if you will. Uh, so there's no individual uh, standpoint or power that, that, that sort of runs. I mean, there's, there's a rep, you know, a, a, a direct, a board, a chairman of the board or something like that, um, to run it. But it's, it's fascinating how these, and it's a challenge. I, I don't know. We're, we're all trying to experiment and break it down. And I think, you know, Balaji wrote this book, the network nation, which I feel that's, that's to me, in a way, somebody that's grown up in one country, moved around the world my whole life, um, I have friends everywhere on the planet. I feel that that really appeals to me. And I think to most of us that are sort of this generation global um, sort of might resonate with that a little more. Love, love the idea. Yep. Yeah. A three and a five-year-old make me need a little bit more, um, you know, <laughs> stability for schools. That's, that, that's the that's the the thing that otherwise i would live that life in a second the one yeah. one thing i though i would mention on your on your um your point though is i look at it a little bit differently which you mentioned everything you know a lot of stuff is still quoted in dollars yeah. i actually think this sort of geopolitical comment for a moment i actually think that the rise and adoption of crypto actually leads to dollarization of the world and so at your so i i think yeah. It, yeah. at some point maybe things get denominated in bitcoin but that ultimately people price Bitcoin probably in dollars. Yeah. And as Bitcoin gets more adopted, as Ethereum and everything else gets adopted, the first, you know, the first conversion is always to USD. 
always. And then it's to other currencies as well. And so I think that actually leads to dollarization. It doesn't mean you're spending dollars, but everything is priced in that. And I think that's kind of a fascinating concept. You may end up using the dollars far, far less, but as a point of reference, as a reference currency, it may become even more important than it is right now. No one's, I mean, who's pricing, you know, Bitcoin and Ruples? Like, I, I, I think some people, I'm not even sure in Russia they're doing that, right? So, you know, right? Like, so I think that like keeps, keeps going. And I think that's sort of an interesting phenomenon that the U.S. should actually really realize that this is a benefit going forward if, if, they, if they sort of look a little bit broader as to how it's actually used and, and, and adopted and, and, and evaluated. Yeah, so global trade is 80% of global trade is done in US dollar dominated. In crypto land, 99% of all transactions are US dollar denominated, right? I mean, they're all using yeah, that, US I didn't know that stat. That doesn't surprise me, but it didn't yeah. surprise me. I mean, it's it's really, yeah, I mean, we we looked at the stablecoin industry. I mean, we're launching a, a flat coin, we call it. So it's pegged to inflation. Um, versus, I mean, it's U.S. dollar, U.S. US economy inflation, um, and then ultimately it's pegged to inflation over the U.S. dollar. Um, and yeah, so studying all the different stablecoins that are out there, 99%, 99.6%, to be honest, is are all U.S. dollar denominated. All trading volume is done in USD, USDT. And by the way, you know, USDT is the number one currency of reserve for, for crypto land. I think it has $65 billion daily trading volume, more so than and Bitcoin itself, right? And, and no, none of the other stable coins come anywhere close to that sort of volume. Yep. But, um, yep, yeah. yep, yep. but I think to your point, yeah, as long as it, everything is coupled to the U.S. dollar, it only helps promote the, the fact that and, and give more authority to the SEC or the U.S. dollar and the Federal Reserve that the U.S. dollar and the U.S. economy is still sort of driving a lot of the influence in terms of value and, and how much value is locked and how much value is being exchanged all the time around the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely right. And I just hope they realize that because it's a positive for the U.S. Totally, totally, totally. Yeah, no, super exciting. Thank you, Tom. Amazing. You know, sort of, um, I, I, yeah, really interesting insights, you know, long, long experience. And, and how, where and how can people follow you and what can they do to help get Fluence more visibility and, and out there and, and, and sort of, find out more about Fluence. Well, listen, I'm um, the Tom Tro on Twitter. Um, you can find me there. You can find Fluence underscore project on Twitter as well. Um, Fluence.network is our website. Um, love to have everyone join you know, us on, on, on there, on Telegram, um, and stay kind of involved and stay tuned for updates. We do bi-weekly developer community calls where we go through wow. what's being built on Fluence. We sort of basically have bi-weekly meetings. We open to the community and some people present projects they're working on. We give our roadmap where we're going and what we've built over the past couple of weeks, where things are. So try to be super transparent about that. So if you're a developer, those bi-weekly calls are terrific things to join. Um, and if you're not, you know, happy to join our Telegram, join, you know, follow us on Twitter and here, you know, come see us speak. Well, I'll be speaking at Token 2049. So hope oh, to see you there, um, um, and uh, if you um, and you know find us, find us there. The team's at uh, Berlin right now, and also be at um, Lisbon at, at Breakpoint also. So hope to uh, be great to connect with anyone interested. Yeah, unfortunately, I won't be at Token 2049 because SmartCon have shifted their event in New York, and we work very closely with Chainlink, and um, really happy as a partner with Chainlink for Truflation. Chainlink, by the way. Gov Hedera Governance Council member. Oh, yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> well done. Well done. <laughs> um, but I will be a break point and I will look forward to sort of seeing you in Lisbon then in that case. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Likewise. Thank you, Tom. Awesome. Super exciting and super excited. So thanks, everybody. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Bye. This was Stefan Roost and Tom Trowbridge. 
You can follow Tom on Twitter at the Tom Throw. That's T H E T O M T R O W. And Fluence Labs at Fluence Projects. That's F L U E N C E underscore P R O G E T C T. You can also follow Stefan on Twitter at SRUST99. That's S R U S T double nine. And you can find the Super Excited with Stefan Roost podcast on all major podcast platforms and on YouTube on the Stefan Roost channel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>